Hello builders. Welcome to the Builders Club Startup Founders podcast. A podcast for founders to upskill themselves and understand the founder mindset. Every week, we sit with the best minds in the startup ecosystem and understand what it takes to start, run and scale businesses. This podcast is from one of our recordings of our water cooler conversations. A weekly community AMA where we get established entrepreneurs to discuss their strategies and their mindset in front of our community members. So sit back, relax and let's start with the episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Builders Club. This is the second edition of the Water Cooler Conversations which we hold every Saturday on our Discord server. This time around, we got the world-renowned New York Times best-selling author of the book, The Lean Entrepreneur, Mr. Brandt Cooper. He is also the CEO of Move the Needles and is a veteran in terms of executing lean methodology in startups as well as bigger organizations. In this conversation, we talk about the lean philosophy the way the pandemic is creating disruptions and how to implement lean philosophy in a bootstrap startup. So sit back and enjoy. Now I'll just, you know, probably give you a little bit of a introduction about uh, about Brandt as well. So Brandt, he, he's a New York Times uh, uh, best-selling author of uh, The Lean Entrepreneur. And he also is the CEO of Moves the Needle. He has a tremendous amount of experience in terms of, uh, you know, implementing lean philosophy and, uh, uh, you know, operations and strategy in, in startups as well as bigger organizations. Um, and uh, he's currently even, uh, you know, is, is currently in the process of writing uh, his next book. Uh, and probably, you know, when we start off we can probably discuss a little bit about uh, about about brand's uh, you know previous book what uh, you know what what that book was about and what his current book is and we'll also probably understand a little bit about his own journey in uh, in in the in this sphere in the sphere of uh, in the sphere of startups and entrepreneurship uh, so first of all welcome brand to the builders club uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, we we all look forward to you know everybody has been looking forward to this session, and uh, you know we intend to you know in this one hour or probably a little bit more longer conversation we intend to get as much as we can out of this conversation. Um, so first of all, welcome. Uh, yeah, thank you. And, and Thanks for having me. So how uh, how has Thank you. Thanks a lot for taking time out during the fag end of the new year, firstly, um, wherein, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people might be busy with Christmas and all of these. How, how, how has the, how's the Christmas been for you this time? Uh, it's, it's a little bit odd, to be honest. Uh, uh, my, two, uh, my two kids aren't around. My daughter did not come down from San Francisco. Uh, 
and you know uh, all of all of the family is locked away in their in their homes so we're taking you know all of this uh distancing seriously so it's yeah definitely an an odd holiday this year yeah 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 so uh you know we'll probably start off brand with a little bit about you know probably you can talk I'll talk us through a little bit about your own journey uh and and you know the kind of philosophies that you picked along the way and you know i i know that you are more of a your focus is always mostly on execution rather than rather than sitting and 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 ideating things so you know would love to know a little bit about your own journey and what your thoughts has been and what your learnings have been in terms of startup and entrepreneurship in general yeah it you know i never i never thought of myself as an idea person i'm not even sure i ever even labeled myself as an entrepreneur i think that what i found <laughs> when people ask me why i went out on my own i usually say because i was a bad employee and uh <laughs> and what i mean by that was that i was horrible to manage nobody wanted to manage me when any company that i worked for you know i was sort of tossed around like a hot potato by the managers uh and i think that was mostly because because i did have my own ideas of how things should work and and uh you know we've all experienced that with managers they are yeah, worried yeah, about yeah. their yeah we're worried about their fiefdom we're worried about they're worried about you know power they're worried about you know appearing right you know they they appearances matter to them and it's really all about their career advancing whereas to me what was was always interesting is how do we actually have some sort of an impact whether that's for customers mm. or on the world or our family or or whatever it seems like there's a lot of energy being wasted trying to figure out how one improves their own appearance in the world versus if you actually contribute value to the world well you know you're likely yourself you're going to benefit in some way whether it's just at a increased contentedness or perhaps it's wealth or whatever but the value that one creates for themselves is really by creating value for others uh yeah. and that's i think i think that's true whether you you know kind of have some sort of a you know philosophy around that i think it's just i think it's just true i mean i i steve jobs was always criticized for not giving more money to philanthropy and mm -hmm. uh jeff bezos who i'm not a fan of by the way is also criticized for mm -hmm. the same thing um mm -hmm. but i think that that's the wrong take right i don't think that what we should do is get as wealthy as possible and then give away our money to charity that's like that's not a way to improve the world the way we improve the world is by increasing the standard of living and increasing the value that we create for other people. And so that's kind of been it took me a long time to find that, but I think that that's really what my journey is 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 learning how to focus on creating value out in the world and then, you know, whatever comes to me out of that, well that's great. Uh but mm -hmm. but how do I actually improve how do I become better at creating value in the world? And that's really what you know when i worked in these uh different startups i made a mm -hmm. ton of mistakes a lot of mistakes but that's really sort mm -hmm. of what brought me down you know this path mhm mm mhm mm mhm 
and and when did you discover lean the lean methodology the lean model well so i was you know after i left the last startup i was in i actually read a paper there was a lot of people that were trying to figure out well why are we building startups so that they look like big companies like if you ever saw the mm -hmm. things that were worked well inside of startups it wasn't because they were you know, full of departments and hierarchy. As a matter of fact, those were bad experiences. When I was in startups that started really small and as they grew, they added layers and layers of hierarchy just as if they were a big company. And the performance mm -hmm. of the company actually deteriorates when that happens. And so there yeah. was a lot of people like sort of writing about that. And I was one of them that was, I was blogging about how we have to go into learning mode and you know, cross-functional and interdisciplinary teams were better for solving complex problems. And somebody then turned me on to Steve Blank's work uh, after I was writing about it. And then I learned Eric was, Reese was just starting blogging uh, about Lean Startup in those days. And so then I ended up writing the first book that talked about all of that stuff. The first book that talked about customer development and Lean Startup and product market fit uh, and those type of things, because there was a group of us that were actively trying to apply techniques to how do we purposefully learn before executing. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And I guess Eric Rice has spoken fairly highly about his experiences in IMVU about it. Um, so, you know, validated learning is something which I am personally a very big fan of very frankly because you know you don't build stuff till the time the customer wants them and and you know i guess this sounds fairly easy but initially once you start off and you once you're creating an mvp or at an at an mvp stage or at a prototype stage you still have hypotheses on the basis of which you basically start something uh, any any thoughts on for the very very early stage companies who are still in the MVP stages? How do they start? Because I guess this is the foundation, and you know, what what are your thoughts on how do they start implementing this in the company right from the get go? Yes, stop building your product. I mean, I think that's the toughest thing for entrepreneurs to do. Is all okay. they are is focused on product, and stop building. Okay. I mean, the thing is, is that Anytime we're tr we try to offer a new product or service to the market, we're asking a group of people, our potential customers, to change their behavior, right? Yeah. They're doing something now, and you want them to change to whatever it is that you have in your mind. So the very yeah. fundamentals of lean innovation or lean startup is, well, how do I validate that that person is willing to change their behavior? without building the product, yeah. without spending tens of thousands or of hours or dollars or, or whatever, how do I not waste? That's what the word lean means, right? It's reducing the waste. So how do I not waste yeah. my time, money, inspiration, energy, building something that nobody wants? Well, yeah. so if it's super inexpensive to build a prototype, fine. But the philosophy yeah. is how do I, how do I communicate or experiment with my who I believe my customers are in a way to validate whether they're willing to do the behavior that they must do for my product to succeed. 
And so mm. it's anywhere inside the business model. It could be, do they even have the problem that you think that they have? Who is that market segment really? How does that problem, uh, how is it prioritized versus other things that are going on in their life? So I, you know, I've lived in this startup world where we created a vastly superior product at a vastly, in, you know, less price and we could mm. not get the customer to buy. And why was that? Because the risk to changing to our product was too high. In other words, mm. the buyer, the IT person, they, they didn't want to risk their job by switching from a name brand to a startup brand. And so that had nothing to do with how superior the product was. It had nothing to do with the cost of the product. It had to do with the, the aspirations of the individual. It had to do with the customer and how do you overcome their fear and their risk. So all of the work that everybody's doing on their product and adding features and, and, and this and that, running these experiments, has nothing to do with likely how do you overcome the objections that this individual has? How do you overcome their fear? How do you address their aspirations? And so understanding your customers deeply is way more important than trying to figure out what goes into your product. So always start with the, with the customer. Always start with what they want rather than what I can build is what I hear. Yeah, that's true. Yep. So you have a to lot start of... with. Yeah, I'm go, sorry, go, on, go ahead. No, no, you go no, ahead. no, no. So I was just saying this. So <laughs> technically, you have to you have to start with a survey or a kind of a dipstick uh, or a certain indication that the or probably you know you can probably copy uh, something which the current process the current process is like. And then and then uh, create a very similar process. Is that so? Are you talking about the process, or are you talking about the value that is being delivered? I want to talk about the value that's being delivered. I don't care about the process because the process. You should be agnostic about the process. Okay. You should be agnostic, okay. right? You shouldn't care as long as what you're doing is solving the problem in a way that the customer really wants the way you're solving it. And so the it's not really a survey. I mean, I have a survey tool that tries to get the survey correctly, but there, it, it, the problem with surveys is that they often are, they subscribe all of the answers. And so then the, the survey taker isn't really addressing what their internal needs are. They're sort of outside of their head. They're, they're within the context of the product as opposed to really learning. So I think in-person interviews are the best way, you know, design thinking, human centered design is a way better methodology in, in terms of learning from the customers. Of course, that's hard during the pandemic, but you know, everybody's used to doing video calls now. So do video calls with who you think your potential customer is. But what you're truly, really trying to figure out, so entrepreneurs often start with trying to solve their own problem, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But can you validate whether there's other people that actually have the problem to the same degree that, that you do, that they mm -hmm. are as concerned about it as you are? Are they willing to change their behavior in order to adopt something different? I mean, you know, I think that, uh, I think that the people undersell the fact that you're trying to change behavior. Changing behavior is, is, is hard. 
if we could all change our own behavior, <laughs> the pandemic would have ended months ago. You know, we would be eating better. We would be, you know, drinking less. We would be exercising more if changing behavior was so easy. Changing behavior is hard. And, uh, and so just because you put a product in front of somebody, that's not going to get them to change their behavior. So the tough part of entrepreneurship is figuring out how do you change somebody's behavior. Or not now that also brings me to the question of how do you know that the let's say you launch you have an mvp you've launched a website you've got signups you've got people who are using the product how do you know that this is the right product market fit how do you know that these people who are coming in are the right audience for the product because they might be coming in for various different reasons like for example in the pandemic since the people are inside their home there might, there might be multiple different things that they might be testing right now, using right now, which might be probably helping them right now uh, in the short term. But from a, from, a, from a founder's perspective, his product is being used. So how does he get to know and how does he interpret that signal which the market is giving him that probably, you know, this is probably not, even if these, this segment is the one who's using us, your product right now, they are probably not the right people for the longer for the for the long haul how do you how do you i mean any thoughts on that but yeah they might be the right people i mean i it, i think what we don't know is is how much of people's behavior that has changed during the pandemic will stick and how much will it go back to how it mm -hmm. was before and we just don't really know that um so there's a couple of things that that come to my mind number 1 is you have to have a a very concrete definition of how somebody uses the product. So you can bucket your different users by the way they use the product. In other words, you should understand very intimately what must a customer do with your product in order for them to achieve the value that you promise them. Right? So if, if, if you have like, here's a silly example, but pretend YouTube's not available yet. And your, your market is, I want to make people into video stars. So mm -hmm. I hypothesize that somebody that wants to be a video star uploads a video of themselves and shares it with 100 friends once a week. So that's mm -hmm. the metric that I'm then tracking. How many customers mm -hmm. are doing that? How many users are doing that? Now, you ha may have a bunch of other people who are setting up accounts, logging in, and not, not doing that. Maybe they're watching mm -hmm. videos. Well, okay, so that's mm -hmm. a different bucket, right? You have to treat those two different market segments differently. One is watching and one is actually creating the video. So you have mm -hmm. to look at the behavior. You segment your customers based upon their behavior with your product. Now, there's one of those mm -hmm. segments that's going to be of higher value to you than other ones. And so what you want to concentrate on then is growing the ones that are high value customers because they're of the way they're using the product. Are they using the features that create value for them or not? That's how you mm -hmm. want to, you want to find who that high value customer is. The other way to validate mm -hmm. that is to ask them. So we're so obsessed with uh, digital marketing and digital tools that we refuse to talk to our customers. Your customers mm -hmm. have all of the insights. The people that mm -hmm. succeed are the ones that hustle and learn from their customers. So get them on the phone, 
Get them on a video call. Ask them why they're using the product. Ask them how it's changing their life. Asking them, you know, what are they, what are they, uh, what have they done in the past? Get that to know them to try to figure out whether these are long-term customers or whether they're just, you know, sort of fly-by-night customers. You can learn by asking them. And actually, you can survey them too after they become customers. I'm just worried about surveying people before they become customers. I get it. I get it. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's been a, a, a very uh, enriching uh, discussion so far. I just wanted to, you know, probably do a little bit of a dip into the times that we're living in right now. Because you talk about you know growth phase in your in your uh, you know in in your in your previous book um i believe and you know i th i would love to hear your thoughts on the way change has been brought by the uh, by the pandemic i don't know for how long this will last but uh, you know a lot of changes has been have been forced on us because of because of the pandemic um, any thoughts on the way you envision or the way you see certain industries being disrupted during this time? Of course, you know, the video, the video element has, of course, been there. But a lot of, you know, macro trends have, have, have moved, like gaming has moved, like, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, lot of other industries also have taken a hit. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on the pandemic in general and the kind of changes that they have been they have they have brought into the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I I a lot of this I just don't know to be honest. I mean, I I I'm old enough to remember that you know after uh, the 9/11 tax attacks here in the U.S., everybody said everything was going to be different. It's changed forever. Uh, and then you know, government and big companies pushed very hard to get everybody to return to normal. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that happened fairly quickly. And so I think that, I think we're going to see the same, the same thing. Those that are in power, government and big companies want everything to return to the way it was before. And so I think that they will push very hard for it to return. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm always suspicious of, uh, you know, the claims that everything is changed forever. I think that there mm -hmm. are some trends, however, that, uh, that I think that uh, probably have changed, right? So we've learned how to work remotely. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's funny, again, that everybody, people seem to view things as black and white, like... Uh, you're gonna work from home or you're gonna work from the office? Well, you know, there's mm -hmm. all sorts of in-between, right? There's mm -hmm. working from home more often, but not always. And mm -hmm. uh, there's working from uh, co-working spots so that you can work with a team. I think the social aspect of human beings is not going away. And so I think that we, mm -hmm. people will find ways to be social again, and I think it's important that we remain social. Uh, and so I think that what there will be is just a new balance, hopefully, that's established where people have a little bit more control over their own time. Uh, that's what mm -hmm. I'm really hopeful for. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, there's, there's 
people don't have to be sitting in their office eight hours a day. That does not make them more productive. And I think that that's actually, I'm wondering if we've learned that lesson, to be honest. You know, when people are working from their house, they have to manage that with their children and their partner and their pets and interruptions and noise and, and you know, having to deal with life. And I don't mm -hmm. think that we've seen some massive fall in productivity. And so I think that it would be nice if what we learned is that uh, people can actually control their own lives and that makes them more productive when they're doing their work. So that'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see whether that's changed at all. Other industries, I think that uh, people will go and return to shopping, but I don't know the malls were already uh, dying here in the United States. So that's That's just sped it up. But I think people will go back to restaurants. Um, I think a lot of the mm. retail stores maybe are in trouble, but I, I don't know. I guess I think people will go back to that again, because that's sort of social. Um, I think medicine has maybe changed. Uh, you know, of course, here in the U.S., our medical system is so messed up anyway that it's it's hard to know uh, what the outcome will be. But you know, telehealth, tele telemedicine has increased quite a bit here now, and I think that that is reasonable that that remains. So we'll 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 see if that remains. You know, there's a lot of big companies that are acting as if they need to take their social responsibilities more seriously. I'm a little bit suspicious that that one doesn't stick, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's it's really hard to predict. There's going to be a tremendous uh, amount of pressure to get things to return to some state of normal. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's that's already something which has started. I guess a lot, uh, a lot of new uh, avenues also have opened up. I mean, there's this whole. Uh, crypto thing which has taken off especially during the pandemic you never know how the digital currencies might might uh, might perform because I, I don't know whether this is a fad or something which is still going to go away any thoughts on that yeah i'm not a believer to be honest so what okay. nobody addresses <laughs> is this fact so i don't know exactly how how your system works mm -hmm. the difference mm -hmm. between a fiat currency which the dollar is, right? And cryptocurrency yeah. is this one fundamental fact. The US mm -hmm. government requires you to pay taxes in US dollars. So yeah. even though that's a fiat currency, you have to have US dollars because you have to pay taxes. And so mm -hmm. all of the other currencies, if they're not based mm -hmm. upon actual you know, if they're not pegged to something that's actually like a precious metal and it's just pure mm -hmm. fiat currency, it's all pure speculation in my belief. And so yeah. I'm not buying. I think it's just a way for people to make a lot of money and lose a lot of money. As long mm -hmm. as the US government or a government requires mm -hmm. taxes to be paid in the currency that that government produces, then that is the value that's pegged. You can't substitute that. You can't pay your taxes in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, it, what's, and, and the thing is, is that the 
a lot of the, you know, tech guys that are all like, you know, cheerleading cryptocurrency because of how, you know, secret it is and how it's so ubiquitous and all these network nodes and all the kind of that kind of stuff. They don't address that fact. And it was so funny. Mm-hmm. I was like overhearing this conversation where some mom was trying to explain cryptocurrency to their teenage daughter. And the teenage daughter mm-hmm. the whole time is all like going, well, you could convert that into US dollars, right? You could cr- convert that into dollars, right? And the mom was all kind of hemming and hawing. Oh, that's not the point. But the daughter was the one that was correct. The daughter was the one that was right because she yeah. recognizes that that's the only thing that in the end protects you is that you've, mm-hmm. got, you've got the actual physical currency in your pocket. If, if, you know, if the world goes to hell in a handbasket, all of your cryptocurrency becomes uh, worthless very quickly in my, in my opinion. Interesting. No, that's 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 actually the other perspective, uh, which which a lot of people uh, are talking about. We still it's still a wait and watch game. The way I look at it, uh, you never know which side the the uh, you know the this thing will will tip. Uh, so I'll just uh, you know uh, till now I think we've we've crossed a half an hour mark. I'll just open the floor also a little bit so people who want to have any questions specifically around either their businesses, around lean philosophy or any other general question in itself, they're happy to ask those questions as well. So if anybody has any questions, please feel free, feel free to shoot. Hey, Brian. So actually, like as we are talking about the pandemic, you know, like uh, many of the ventures have come across in this pandemic, like invest uh, the investors are investing in like hell of the money in this uh, startups and all, which are mainly focused on this uh, kind of period type of thing, like the pandemic only. So, do you think, like as you said, as you mentioned in the previous discussion, like the governments will uh, try to make the situation as much as normal as possible? So, do you think will it affect uh, this kind of startups uh, in any case? Yeah, I'm sure it will. I mean, I think that, um, like, even we can go back to the the video example. Uh, so, you know, obviously Zoom succeeded, but I'm sure you all have noticed that you know, there's another hundred or a thousand or tens of thousands of video startups that have mm-hmm. that have Probably. emerged, right? And um, yeah. and there's a couple of problems. Number one is that you know, we don't enforce antitrust. And so Google cheats and Microsoft cheats and, and, and they are giving away free video products to all of their corporate customers. Um, and I, I don't think that that should be allowed. That's classic antitrust. Um, but if you're at another small startup, that makes things, you know, really, really tough uh, to compete. I, I like the fact, one of the positive aspects of these startups, though, is that they've made virtual conferences way better. So there's a number mm. of different, uh, you know, so that Zoom ends up being the generic conference call, which everybody loves, but it actually is not great compared to some of these other startups when it comes to uh, running conferences or running workshops or running these other specific types of remote events. And I mm-hmm. think that a lot of the remote events are going to continue. 
And, uh, and, and I think that even if you have in-person conferences or in-person workshops, you can make them available to a broader audience remotely at the same time. And so I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on there that will be sustained after the pandemic, but I also don't think it'll be sustained at the same level. So I think that the, I guess the question mark becomes is how big is the market? And I think that we can assume that the market is bigger than it actually is during the pandemic. Um, I also think that there's like, uh, there's interesting counter examples. So uh, for my new book, I was interviewing a, the CEO of, uh, of the bank ING uh, in Australia. It's a European bank, but they have a, you know, a big presence in Australia. And when the pandemic hit, uh, all of their competitors were, were, you know, here's how you sign up for internet banking and trying to get everybody to go digital as quickly as possible. This bank was already digital. And so what they did is they would run these advertisements that say, listen, I know this is hard. We're stuck at home too. If you want somebody to talk to, give us a call. And so they were, they were really going for more of the human interaction rather than the digital, pure digital. <laughs> and so I think that that's kind of an interesting, I mean, what you kind of want to do in the entrepreneur world is zag when everybody else is zigging. So what would be interesting in my view is how do I actually make things more personal, make things more social, make things more in person, make things, you know, that, 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 uh, address sort of human needs, um, more than the digital side of things. And maybe that's actually what will come out of the pandemic is, is the need for people to have real, interactions, real relationships, real communications, rather than everything just digital, digital, digital. When we go digital, mm -hmm. we lose the why. We lose, you know, you don't understand what motivates people. You don't understand what their needs are. You don't understand how you can help them. And so I, I think that that's, that's entrepreneurs need to zag. They need to go and try to figure out what the human connection part of things is. And that's maybe where real loyalty exists where real, you know, people want to, uh, to benefit from that. Oh, well, I guess, I guess, you know, you've, you've kind of broken things down to a very, very elemental level that, you know, the most important thing is to basically go and speak to your customer. It's as simple as that. If you're not doing this, then, then you're doing your business wrong. Um, but I think yeah, that's true. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, Listen, yeah. The, there's there's very little technical risk in what everybody's building these days. So if you've got yeah. if you've got a advanced blockchain or advanced artificial intelligence or hardware or chemistry or real intellectual property, that's great. I think you should build it out. But that's not what most entrepreneurs are doing. Most entrepreneurs are building tech with you know off the shelf tools. And there's really no intellectual property there. So in my view, yeah. your real competitive advantage is learning something about your customer that nobody else knows. 
insights are your competitive advantage. So how can you hustle and get insights on your customers that nobody else has and then move quickly to take advantage of those insights? Interesting. Interesting. So I, I was fell very recently reading this book the, called The Mom Test. I don't know whether you've heard of it. Uh, no. It's, it's about, it's about uh, how to administer a, a questionnaire to, uh, to, your, to your audience. So, you know, a lot of people don't ask the question the right way, especially when you're doing ideas. You know, you kind of, you know, want them to say what you want to hear. But right. usually, usually, you know, uh, uh, instead of actually getting insights, you basically get a, a kind of a forced validation of what you want to, of the product that you're trying to build and come back happy. But that's not the real insight in the first place. <laughs> right. So, fairly, fairly interesting book. You should definitely have a look at that. So coming to that, uh, you also are writing a next book on disruptions, right? Uh, care to you know give us a little bit of a brief about what that book is all about? Yeah, so the book is called, right now, the working title is Disruption for All. And basically the book is, you all are familiar with this. We're, we're in a digital revolution, Right. So the, the fact yeah. that everybody runs around with computers in their pocket is fundamentally changing society. And so my belief yeah. is that the very structure of education, government, corporations, all institutions in society, the very structure is going to change because the structure was built upon the industrial age. Yeah. Education yeah. is really geared towards producing people to work in industrial age businesses. Industrial age businesses really like an assembly line and government is, yeah. is built to model the corporations. And so we're not in the age anymore. And so what we sort of the entrepreneurial spirit, the Al design thinking, human centered design, lean startup. That way of working is really believed to be the fundamental working unit is uh, empowered, autonomous, self-organized teams is the unit of work. And that will be sort of the way structure is, is geared is in creating those type of uh, teams. And, and um, so there's sort of the layers of communication that need to go on in order to ensure that the company is what I call resilient and aware and dynamic. And so the companies themselves will be able to, uh, to respond to disruptions like the pandemic in, 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 you know, way better ways. They'll be more aware of what needs to happen. They can change quickly. And it's because of this agile nature. Now, so that's happening. I think that's happening whether we want it to happen or not. And so the idea of the book is, is that we really sort of need to take the bull by the horns in order to make disruption work for all of us. So we've seen here in the US, uh, you know, the pandemic has resulted in the rich getting richer. And all of this money yeah. has flowed even more to the, the wealthy, just billions of dollars in wealth. And that's really because of this fundamental imbalance in our economic system. And so I think that there's some part of that structure change really is up to us as people to kind of take the bull by the horns and make sure that we can 
we can make this disruption work for everybody, which was always the promise of entrepreneurialism, always the promise of capitalism is that we can solve problems. And so we really need to make sure that capitalism is solving not problems, not being, not being part of the problem. Okay. Wow. So uh, basically, uh, from what I understand, um, is, is democratization or decentralization of education and value is, is what we're talking about then. Yeah, uh, that's actually and, a good way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. 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 That sounds really interesting. Looking forward to that as well. Uh, anybody else wanted to add or anybody else wanted to ask any questions? Um, yeah, I do, hi. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Rishabh this side. So my question to you is that uh, I've been hearing a lot about mental models currently and how different people have different mental models when they are faced with different problems or in fact, in not not even problems for for just creativity they say that creativity is a process of uh, or uh, writing is also a process or when whenever you are faced with difficult uh, some difficulties you should have some mental uh, models so that you can solve it similarly when you are in the start of you are building something from the scratch so you face a lot of different problems so uh, do you use different do you have any mental models if you could share with us so that we can also uh, learn and we can also uh, apply it uh, yeah great <laughs> That's a tough question. I, you know, my, I'm not sure I have mental models. I think I have, maybe they're mental models. You tell me, but I, I have some fundamental principles. Uh, and so if things like just simply admitting what I don't know, like, like mm. being very self-aware and, and being willing to say, I don't know. And so I consciously, I consciously separate known from unknown. And then I know okay. that the known is something that we can execute on. And so I'm going to pass that to other people that are capable of executing on what's already been figured out. My responsibility is the unknown. And so that's really where these, the learning takes place. And so that's really around the human-centered design and running experiments. And it's really trying to use evidence to validate or invalidate our assumptions. So that's one mm -hmm. thing that I try to get people to think about is, is this consciously separating the known versus the unknown because you have to work differently when you face those things. Um, I think that uh, there are decision-making models, um, you know, opportunity matrix or segment matrix. Like if you have a bunch of different uh, market segments that you have in mind, then you can list those out as rows and then figure out what are the characteristics that differentiate those segments as columns. Um, do they have budget? How easy are they to reach from a marketing perspective? How long is the sales cycle? Uh, how easy is the MVP that I have to produce for them? And, and so you just rank those different market segments for each one of those characteristic, characteristics, you know, high, medium, or low. And what you try to do is, is, is it helps you reveal which market segment you should focus on. Um, and so you could use that sort of opportunity matrix whenever you're trying to make uh, you know, decisions among uh, several different choices. Um, so maybe that's a mental model that, uh, that would help. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you should, uh, Rishabh, you should also check out uh, Brand's uh, book, The Lean Entrepreneur. 
because that has a lot of modules uh, in terms of both in terms of opportunity matrix or in terms of how to rank your different sub segments how to actually take a call of which segment to go in for and which and with which strategy so it's fairly laid it out in a very very bare bones manner in this book you should definitely check that check that out as well um so that's that's there definitely definitely i will go through it cool weinberg you had a question um yes it was about his new book um i'm curious what you mean exactly by making entrepreneurship a work, like disruption work for everyone um because by like more traditionally if you look at the big examples in entrepreneurship you end up seeing a lot of examples of humans basically being replaced by technology if you have more advanced technology you can do uh the same thing with less resources usually so i i was just curious on how that side of the equation works yeah there's a couple of things one is i'm trying to i'm trying to steal the word disruption and so i what i'm trying to say really is that it's happening regardless of whether we try or not and so if we take a more active role then we can use the same principles that are used in disruption the same sort of i have the five elements empathy exploration evidence equilibrium and ethics if we start implementing those or instituting those in everything that we do then we can ensure that society actually protects those that are being disrupted for example or you can apply those principles to uh to stock exchanges to shareholders you can apply those to government you can apply them to local organizations you can apply those same sort of agile distributed decentralized empowered techniques anywhere in society and in that way we're actually making that those same sort of principles work um work everywhere and a matter of fact the example that you give is sort of interesting so uh robotics does in fact um replace uh jobs but you can actually create ai and robotics and purposefully uh apply them in a way that creates more high paying jobs than uh the low low paid jobs um they replace but it takes a policy it takes like a concerted effort to do that but i mean that people have already figured that out and so there's an example of if we're just passive about it then uh you're right we you know the new jobs won't necessarily be created by growth or innovation um they'll just be eliminated but if you actually are proactive about it and take a policy perspective on it or uh, an ethical perspective on it you can ensure that that technology is being applied in a way that actually creates more high paying jobs and so i think that that's really what i mean is disruption for all is a, is whether we're passive about what's happening to us or whether we take a more active role that's so fascinating thank you that's interesting yeah abdul hey, you had a question yeah yeah uh, brand first and foremost uh, thanks a lot man for doing this uh, i just wish i just heard the first uh, couple of dialogues i just wish that you get to at least celebrate the new years with your complete family uh, so uh, the question that i have is <laughs> thank you me too yeah yes yeah. so uh, the question that i have is basically uh, now as they say that it's the age of the platform economy 
so uh, a lot of people are because building a platform is tech, from a technology standpoint is pretty easy uh, we have all the tools no code tools and everything is out there but uh, the main problem that everybody faces uh, when 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 building a platform for whatever goods or pro- services they are providing is the chicken and egg problem is the first either the demand should come or the supply should come uh, and without the other the let's say without the supply the demand is not ready to onboard and without the demand the supply is not ready to onboard so uh, how could you ha- is there any way that you think we could solve this uh, in in a maybe a leaner way or or any other instead of just spending a lot of money in customer acquisition and stuff like that yeah i actually don't think that there's a chicken in the egg problem i think that um for most for most platforms or marketplaces one side of the market is the product mm-hmm. one side right. is willing to go they'll always be there it's only the other side one side will always be there but maybe they don't get anything out of it but they'll always be there they're ready and so there's one side that you have to focus on you have to create the demand generation side of it the supply is always there if okay. you if you're creating a if you're creating a uh, you know a uh, a a platform for f- photographers where you're trying to sell market people hey, you know you go buy these photographer these photos from photographers like unsplash right it's like right will the photographers ever say no will they ever not put their photographs up no of course they will the supply is always there the other side so there's no chicken and the egg problem you have to bring the money if you bring the money then there's somebody that's going to take the money right so mm. no so the problem that i faced is specifically uh, so uh, i'm actually working with a friend of mine so we are trying to build a platform for uh, booking tickets in australia so okay. uh, so so over there uh, when we right now we approach the theaters so we even we thought that you know we are facing a supply and demand problem let's just do one thing let's just get a few theaters on board and then let's or cinemas on board and then let's go for the customer acquisition but uh, what we have come across is that theaters are not that willing to come on the platform so what but why not do it like don't get them on the platform show them the value without getting them on the platform i mean what are you essentially selling telling them is like i'm going to bring you 100 tickets right for a particular event right so if you ask them you know if i bring you 100 tickets will you give me 10% okay okay so we right? structure I mean, it in a way where where we show how how value is generated and then maybe uh, they could yeah. have a trial or something of that sort and then maybe well like so even if they don't go on the platform you could go on the platform for them right you could you could set it up or you know even whether even if you're not allowed to use their name or their or whatever i mean you just if if you go to a theater and you say if i bring you a thousand want them and they say no well then i mean that's just weird right yeah um, yeah yeah okay okay <laughs> yeah 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 so they they're not going to be they're not going to be technology early adopters but the value proposition is what you have to get at not whether they can use a platform the platform ends up being hopefully something that they'll learn is an easier way to get the value proposition but test the value proposition first right right yeah. okay okay yeah i'll try i'll try this method out so in, instead of actually building the platform you first go and talk to them and tell them that hey you know you're going to get 100 customers from us 
would you want to or would you not want to and we'll keep this much percentage well even better than that yeah even better than asking them do it as what we call the concierge mvp right which is the the it's an experiment where you actually fulfill the value um, without building any technology so not even asking them would you just go you just go to them and go listen I'm going to go get you a hundred customers to show up on this night, but you need to pay me 10% for me to deliver all of these customers. Are you in? And then if they say yes, then you go do it. You don't have to build the technology. You have to just go find a hundred customers. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it. That's interesting, Brand. So you talk about, uh, there are MVP charts, there are MVP models that we can go in for. Are there, are there any which, which you would want to share with us? Because most of us are building something or the other. Yeah, there's, uh, um, I, I think that there's, I think they're in my book, but I think that they're also all yeah. over the internet. So there's a bunch of like different ways to run experiments to try to validate the behavior. And so there's the, there's the concierge MVP, which is what I just described, where you do it in person rather than a, a, through technology. There's one that's called the Wizard of Oz, or mechanical Turk, we think yeah. that they're interacting with the, but it's you just doing it by hand behind. But it's again, you're providing the actual value, or you could just provide yeah. them that they're willing to go for the value, even if you're not ready yet. And then you just kind of say, okay, well, I'm not ready, but you've got them to behave in a way that indicates that they're willing to pay for, or they want that value. Um, you know, there's a, there's a dry wallet experiment where you try to get people to take money out of their wallet to buy something from you. And then you don't take the money because you don't really have the product, but the fact that they reached for the money in their wallet gives you indication that willing to buy. There's a high hurdle experiment, which is, you know, instead of, instead of, you know, getting them to ask five, answer five questions in our survey, you have five pages of uh, survey <laughs> to see if they're willing to put up with all of that in order to get to the value that you're offering them. So you, you, you purposefully set up a wall that they have to clamber over in order to get the value that you're promising them. So that's, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's just up to your own creativity. It's asking the question, what can what's an analogy what's a what's a way that i can get them to behave in a way that convinces me that they really want this mm-hmm. that's that's a fairly interesting take on 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 this thing um uh, i think you know we are we are closing in on the one hour mark anybody has you know we'll probably take another one or two questions uh, anybody else has any any questions or any anything to add on Uh, okay. Yeah, Brent. So, so actually, like uh, I was uh, kind of wondering, like, what does Lean Philosophy talk about teams? Like, uh, how the team should be, or the team uh, priorities, or something like that. What does Lean Philosophy says about these things? Yeah, I'm not sure Lean Philosophy says anything necessarily about the team. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know we teach uh, agile techniques, and and. I, I don't really care about whether it's Kanban or Scrum or, or whatever, but I think that there's, uh, you know, the idea in Agile is that you are, the team is, is responsible for figuring out how to solve a problem. And so you have to give a team a strong mission. This is what they need to go accomplish. 
You give them the resources that they need to accomplish it. You give them uh, your priorities uh, in terms of the outcomes and how you're going to measure the outcomes. And then you let them go off and figure it out. And they have to figure out the internal team dynamics. And, uh, you know, the sprints obviously allow them to figure out uh, what they're going to work on over the duration of the sprint. Um, retrospectives are how they, you know, look back and improve the way they do work and improve their delivery. Um, and so there's a lot of valuable agile yeah. techniques, but it's, I, I'm not, is that what you were asking? So I guess one of the things which you covered in the book as well was around uh, instead of building function-based teams, you should build on cross-functional teams and make them uh, go in for a common vision or a common, uh, you know, going after a certain problem and solving these problems instead of, you know, them, everybody going in for a specific metric, which kind of is a vanity metric. Uh, so that's something which I found very interesting in the book as well. Yeah, so it really bases. It really depends on the amount of uncertainty, and so the the trick is is scaling that type of thing. So, so when you're five people, you know you should be interdisciplinary, cross functional, and figure out you know what what the problems you should be solving that'll have the most impact. When you're five hundred people, you yeah. start you start dividing the company along the continuum, along the spectrum of uncertainty. And so when there's very low uncertainty, when everything is kind of known, I have to go build this, cross-functional doesn't really, isn't as important anymore. They should still be working agile, but they, you don't necessarily need a marketing person or a sales person in there because it's already been known that something needs to be produced. Whereas the other end of the continuum might be, you know, what is the next product that we should build or, or how do we enter this new market? And so then there might be, you know, a very interdisciplinary team because there's so much unknown. So the more uncertain you are, the more diverse you need the team, the less uncertain, you know, the more uniform the team can be based upon their expertise to build on what is known. But remember, that's all assuming that one is being super honest and super self-aware about what is actually known versus unknown. And that's a very difficult thing. Uh, you know, our societies grow up in a way that we we don't want to admit that we don't know. And we want to appear like we know everything that we're doing in front of others. And so, uh, you know, it's one of those things that we have to be able to lead by example, walk the walk and and talk the talk and 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 admit when we don't know, admit when we're wrong. And uh and, and so then so then we're able to you know, address uncertainty where it exists. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that's that's been a that's been a wonderful one hour rant. Uh, any? <laughs> oh, you're uh, welcome. Yeah. No, no, because uh, it's 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 absolutely true. Whatever you have told us, and I guess you know, um, any uh, any anybody has any last questions or i would i would just like to wrap it up in in some form anybody who has anything else to add on to okay cool so uh, brad what i was talking about was uh, you know the the idea that uh, uh, you know you are 
uh, you know as you are growing a company uh, you know you you basically come across these hurdles and if you if you are able to align your thinking towards the lean philosophy where you focus more on the customer uh, and and not on the uh, you know not i mean keeping it a very very customer first kind of an approach is something which goes on i just wanted to you know uh, have a little bit of thoughts from you since we are all startup founders here uh, any any specific you know uh, thing that we should while you know assuming that majority of the people here are in the very fairly early stages of either the first or the second startup um, if you are in a second startup of course you have your learnings to go and for you know what you know you learn while while you execute right so if you have done it you know where you are faltering but any way you know any any roadmap which people can follow for creating their new businesses that are out there and you know any any certain or specific matrices that they should avoid and they should uh, or rather they should uh, focus on religiously and the ones which which they, which, which they should avoid any any thoughts on 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 that front or i <laughs> Just don't worry about scaling too quickly. That's the number one of the, you know, the the two biggest reasons why startups fail is they is premature scaling, and they're not actually being a market for the product. And so that's what we've addressed here, right? Is go figure out if there's a market, and all of your hustle is around getting customers, and getting them on board, and and. You know, you can't get to a thousand without getting to a hundred and you can't get to a hundred without getting to 10. And if you can't get, you can't get to 10 without getting to one. I don't know if it's like, uh, I don't know if this yeah, is uh, absolutely popular in, yeah, I don't know if this is popular in India, but if you go into retail stores here that are owned by individuals, you often see the first dollar they ever made is framed and hung on the wall. And I love that because it represents the very first customer that gave them their first dollar. And that's actually, you know, that's what you're striving for is who's the first customer that will give me a dollar. And then once you get one person to do that, now you can go for 10. Um, but don't yeah. go for a thousand right from the get go. Scaling is, is what you learn to do based upon customers being passionate about the value that you're driving for them. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting, cool. Um, I think uh, you know we have we have kind of now uh, reached the point where we should wrap up now. Uh, thanks a lot, Brand, for taking time out. Any parting words for for the Builders Club? Any parting words for the community? Well, I just you know, feel free to uh, reach out to me, uh, Brant at brantcooper.com or on LinkedIn. Um, you might want to reference this talk uh, if you do it yeah. on LinkedIn. Um, so I know that's where you know me from. But um, and you know I'm on Twitter or whatever. So just you know feel free to reach out. I I respond to everybody. So uh, so you know I I just wish everybody luck and and uh, a good new year and uh, hopefully uh, hopefully you know sort of onwards and upwards from from here. That was the episode. Hope you got some rich insights for your idea from this. If you liked the episode, 
do share it with your friends and rate us on Spotify, Google Store and iTunes. If you want to join the Water Cooler Podcast live, join the club at www.thebuildersclub.me. Until next time, upwards and onwards.